Welcome. It is such a joy to be here together, guys. I am not uh, over-speaking when I say that this is one of my favorite nights every year. So like the girl said, my name is Rebecca. If I haven't met you, I hope, I hope too soon. We are in for a special treat tonight. We are going to be uh, hearing from Emily. I uh, hope you guys get a chance to get to know her tonight. Um, it's not like we YouTubed how to co-teach at a women's event. We're making this up. So um, we hope that it will just help you see more of the wonders of God's word to hear from two different people. We're not acting. We didn't like, like work on our steps. It's not a dance routine. So I hope that tonight you can just feel like instead of there being hundreds of women here, I want you to feel like it's just us and you and a couple friends sitting around digging into God's word, helping each other see how good he is. Okay, and Emily and I were talking, you know, our biggest fear is not that, that this would be a bad idea. Our biggest fear isn't that we talk too long. Our biggest fear is that our mic would be on while we were singing. <laughs> I that was would very have, scared of that. That would have been horrible. I whisper sung the whole time, just in case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was fake worshiping. That's what she just said. No, that's okay. Okay, no, no, not at all. Um, guys, Love tonight. I love an excuse to get together with a group of women and to throw a party. But here's what I really love about Christmas. I love to find um, the unfamiliar versions of the Christmas story. So if you've been coming to our women's events for the last several years, you have found that we go to the first half of the Bible often to tell us about the Christmas story, which we would find in our Gospels. I think it's fun to learn about Jesus from before Jesus came as a baby. So a couple years ago, we found the Christmas story in Isaiah 11, where we read that Jesus was like a shoot that came from the stump of Jesse. And if you were here last year, we went to Exodus and we found our Christmas story as we looked at the story of God's people being led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. We've learned about Emmanuel. And we've also kind of like fallen into this fun theme where we dig into the Christmas song lyrics and we kind of base our night on that. Well, it's pretty obvious that we're still doing that tonight as we are going to go back into the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. And our song is A Little Town of Bethlehem. So full, full honesty here, guys. I hate that song. <laughs> Until tonight, you guys did a beautiful job. I don't hate it anymore. But before tonight, I was like, ugh, it is rough. I even looked it up on Spotify, trying to find a version that I liked with my grandma. We sat there one night and all we could find was Elvis. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there's one line in there that I like. I wonder if when you were listening to it, if you caught onto there's this one line that I think is really powerful. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So speaking of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That, that landed well with me. It intrigued me. That line makes me think about my last year. It makes me think about the highs and the lows, the hopes and the fears of my last year. And it makes me think of you guys. It makes me think of the stories I know from this room, the hopes that have been voiced throughout the year, the fears that have been faced throughout the year. And so I want us to go into the town of Bethlehem and go into this song and see if we can find both comfort and joy as we dig into it tonight, guys. So the book of Ruth, it starts like this, verse one, in those days when the judges ruled. Stop right away. What is the author doing? He wants us to know what the context of this story is right away. He wants us to know what, what time this was. It was the time of the judges. 
So if you were looking at the book of Ruth, you should just look back one page at the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges. And this is what you would read. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When the author says everyone, what he really means is the people of God, the Israelites. The Israelites, so like those freshly freed, those freshly liberated and conquering people of God. Instead of following God and serving him, they acted like he was not the king. He acted like he didn't even exist and they did what was right in their own eyes. And it was not going well for them. That rebellion had led them into a really dark season. Next, the book of Ruth tells us, and there was a famine in the land. Chapter one continues to unpack and it now introduces us to some of the main characters. It talks about a man named Elimelech and his wife's name, Naomi, and their two sons. And it says that because of the famine in the land, they left Bethlehem and they went and they sojourned in Moab. Okay, so do you see what we have going on? Are you building this list in your mind? We have a rebellious group of people. We have a famine, a season with dryness and no food. And now we have a, a family of God's chosen people leaving Bethlehem for Moab, leaving a town within the promised land for a foreign country. And then the story just gets worse from there, guys. What happens next is we read that uh, the two sons take Moabite women as their wives. One of them is Ruth. But then it says that Elimelech dies and both sons die after that. This is the opening scene of our story tonight. It is almost hopeless, isn't it? We have disobedience, famine, a family leaving. We have death. We even have implied infertility for these women. This is quite the scene. It is almost hopeless. And so I need to ask you guys, what do you think is the biggest problem? That was the first question that popped into my mind when I was studying this. What is the biggest problem for these remaining women? Was it the lack of food? Was it the lack of husbands? Was it the lack of a plan? Was it the fact that they were pagan? What is the biggest problem, the biggest need as the story opens? I actually don't think it was any of those things. I think the biggest need in this opening scene is that the people of God don't have a king. The people of God do not have a king and that eclipses all the other needs in this scene. The people of God do not have a king. And so here we have, we have the Israelites, but in particular, we're gonna look at Naomi. We have Naomi with probably very little fear and a whole, or a whole, a little bit of hope and a whole lot of fear. This opening scene, it leaves the reader wanting a king for the people of Israel. It leaves us kind of understanding that if the people of God could be led by a righteous king, then their greatest need would be met. So ladies, where is the king for the people of God? Yeah, and it's actually that very same question um, that carries through a large portion of the Bible and is actually leading us right to the Christmas story tonight. Um, I think that we would say we all have this innate desire to want to be led well um, by something or someone greater than ourselves. And if you look at the Bible, it's flooded with people with that same innate desire. But instead of going outside of themselves um, to look for this kingly reign, they take it into their own hands. And it's that same question of where is the king um, 
that is taking us from Ruth's life to Jesus's life and to the story of why we're gathering tonight to celebrate Christmas. Um, the book of Luke tells us that uh, Caesar Augustus uh, required everyone to be registered uh, for a census. And this was actually illegal, and so the Jewish people saw this as Roman oppression. So that's why the same question is here. There's still not a worthy king. Um, and that's the reality that we're walking into as we enter Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem. So we have this same question. The same road is traveled a thousand years later, but now we have two stories in the same town with the same question, where is the king for God's people? And so let's keep looking at the book of Ruth um, and to look at this road to Bethlehem. Um, the beginning of the book is tragic. Like Rebecca mentioned, three women are left without husbands and one of those without both of her sons. Um, I'm gonna read in six and seven. Um, it says, Naomi, it's talking about, then she arose with her daughters, daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Wow, 10 years, no famine, given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. So now Naomi is in this foreign nation and hears about how the Lord had visited or sent rain to Bethlehem um, and ended the famine that originally drew her family out to start with. Uh, but before she leaves, she encourages her two daughters-in-law and their names were Ruth and Orpah. Not to be confused with Oprah, though that would be really fun if Oprah was in the Bible. I feel like a lot more cars would be handed out and vacations and other fun things that Oprah does. Also forgive me if I actually say Oprah because I've done that a lot. Um, so she, she encourages her daughters, Ruth and Orpah, Orpah, um, to return or to stay in Moab and return to their families. Um, and she even draws out this like awkward scenario of her having more sons and entertains this awkwardness of, well, like they, you wouldn't wait to remarry my, my future sons, would you? And so we're, we're left with asking, why is Naomi so adamant about having these women stay in Moab as she returns to Bethlehem? You know, why, why offer them this weird marriage scenario? Well, something we have to keep in mind is that having heirs and receiving an inheritance was of so high a value in this culture because it gave people the security they needed to know that they would be provided for. Um, I don't know if you guys have any experience with um, inheriting anything. I recently just inherited something for the first time. Um, my grandma passed away a couple months ago and I got some of her dish towels and aprons, um, and they're very cute, and I'd love to have you guys all over for dinner sometime, and I can use them and show them to you, and you can talk to me about the things you've inherited as well, um, but the, the inheritance that Naomi is alluding to is so much more than just some new additions to your kitchen, um, or my kitchen, I should say. It would be the way, this inheritance would be the way that these women would be cared for and provided for in their life. So the question of why is Naomi pitching them ways to remarry and have another husband? It's because of the inheritance. So we actually now have a new tension and a new question. Where is this husband? Where, where is their opportunity for inheritance for these women? So, so Naomi, she's on her way back to Bethlehem. Orpah does decide to return um, to her family in Moab, but Ruth decides to follow her. Um, and we think that maybe the story is getting better, but it must be worse because now we have the two questions that we're left to answer. And it's, where is the king to rule and govern God's people? And where is the husband to provide an inheritance for these women? So Naomi, she's, she's on her way home to Bethlehem and her heart is filled with bitterness. She, she's allowing herself to be identified by her life circumstances, so much so that she, she asks people to call her a different name because of her bitterness. She says, call me Mara, like, I'm, I'm bitter. Don't call me Naomi. 
And, and it goes on to say that um, she, she says, like, I left Bethlehem full and I am returning empty. But the reality is that she actually left relationally full and she left a famine. And when she's returning, she's claiming relational emptiness. But what she's returning to, it says a harvest. That's why she's going home because the Lord had visited Bethlehem and has now had a harvest. And, and maybe you're like me and you want to um, claim Naomi as the bad guy in this story. Um, I know I'm tempted to do that. Or maybe you're also just quick to um, call yourself Ruth because she's the loyal and hopeful one and we all want to be like that. Um, but if I'm being totally honest with you guys, I see myself in Naomi and feel her cry of frustration. Um, maybe you don't know me, and, and that's because, it could be because I just moved to Iowa City in June. I haven't been around that long. And um, something that, f for me, I, I have moved in the last three years, I have lived in three different places and had three different jobs. So every year for the last year, I've moved to a new city and held a new different job. And so I don't mean to say that as a woe is me. I mean to say that as a, I think I understand Naomi's frustration and bitter heart towards the things in life that God has brought her through. And so the application for me and for you guys, I think is, are you, are you bitter? Do you find yourself frustrated where God has you? Or how much of your life right now are you spending entertaining those resentful or cynical thoughts in your life? In a more specific application, is there anything in you that is dreading the holidays because you don't wanna to have to explain your life circumstance of bitterness to your friends and family? Or better yet, you don't wanna to have to act like you don't have any bitterness in your life right now to your friends and family as you go home. The reality is that we must look at Naomi's life with great compassion due to her severe amounts of grief and loss. We also must look at the provision and hope that God is providing for her and wants to move her towards. So often I think we hold on to the things that we think will give us happiness when the truth is, is that joy is found in knowing God. And I think we get to see that in Ruth's life. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite woman um, and has only ever heard of this Israelite God. She's only ever heard of it. She hasn't even ever been to Bethlehem before. Um, but she is able to look past her current circumstances and decides to follow Naomi to Bethlehem anyways so that she too can be a part of worshiping this Israelite God. She looks past her suffering and sorrow and clings to her new hope in this God for her. So these two women, they have very different attitudes as they are approaching Bethlehem. Um, but, what, but what is the Bible saying they're returning to it, that we have to pay attention to is the harvest, a barley harvest. It's been 10 years since there's been a famine or 10 years of a famine. There was probably a chatter that just graced Bethlehem or maybe even just straight up shouts of joy at the sight of this harvest. And we have to ask ourselves, what is this barley harvest in the middle of grief supposed to teach us? And here's something that I think it's supposed to tell us. It's that biblical hope is not just optimism. Having biblical hope is not just being an optimistic person. It's not saying the things like, oh, the season of life is so hard, but at least my hair looks good today, which I hope it does because I got it cut yesterday. <laughs> um, it's not saying those things. Hope is actually seeing and acknowledging the pain and the hurt and the sorrow in both your past and your present. And hope is seeing the future, it's looking at the future and clinging to a promise that says this pain and this hurt and this sorrow will not stay this way. 
It's taking a leap of faith and clinging to God who, who is infinite and powerful and sovereign and good. That is hope. How are your life circumstances blinding you from seeing God's faithfulness is a question I would ask yourself. And I would encourage you to zoom out and find rest knowing that he works things together for your good. Even in pain and in grief, he is still a good God that wants what's best for you. Ladies, how cool is it that this story, this is the same little town of Bethlehem that we sing about for our Christmas story. This is the same scene. So listen to now these familiar verses from the book of Luke. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Okay, guys, the road of Naomi and Ruth, so to speak, is the same road of Mary and Joseph so many years later. Both Naomi and Joseph are returning each to their own town. As Naomi and Ruth enter, they note the fullness of harvest. Well, imagine Mary and Joseph entering into Bethlehem at full term and finding a full city, right? Imagine Ruth, young and vulnerable, but with some hope amidst her fear, moving into Bethlehem. And imagine Mary, also young and vulnerable, carrying into Bethlehem the hope of the world. Okay, let's keep going in Ruth's story. So chapter two and three, I'm gonna move really quickly through these two chapters, not hitting on everything, but just a couple specifics and, and asking a couple important questions. Okay, chapter two opens up and Ruth has a plan. She has a plan for food for her and Naomi. Once again, here's Ruth and she's showing great character, right? Character, loyalty, courage. Now that is the G version of this story, right? And it's not incorrect. We should look at Ruth tonight and say, let's be like her, okay? But I think there's more there. I think there's something else there. I think it's a little bit harder to look at. Recall once again, Ruth is a foreigner. Specifically, she's a Moabite. Moabites were detestable to the people of God. And here she is. Her plan to get food for her Naomi is to go into the fields and to follow after the harvesters and just pick up their scraps. How do you think this is gonna go for her? How is this gonna go for a detested woman, vulnerable, unprotected, this single woman? How is this going to go for her if she goes into a field that could very likely be filled with men who are doing what is right in their own eyes? Do you feel that tension? We should stop and ask right here, does God care? Does God even care about this woman? How is this going to go for her? Does God care for her? She is vulnerable and she is exposed. And if you are coming at the end of a very hard year, then maybe this story is starting to be way too relatable for you. And furthermore, if you are embittered because of loss, because of fatigue, because of that one person or that one situation, then maybe that as you get to this point in the story, you think, yeah, it's gonna go bad for her. 
because that's just what you've been programmed to expect is more hardship and more pain. We should ask the question, does God care? In fact, I would even say that I think the author wants us in this moment to feel a sense of foreboding. What is going to happen to this woman? She is the lowest of the low. And the narrator, interesting enough, has not said a thing about God. Isn't that interesting? The narrator hasn't actually even told us anything about God's role in this or God's opinions on this or how he is going to respond. He seems silent. And so we say, does he care? Or is he so high up in the heavens that he has not even involved himself in the decisions or the aches and the pains and the journeys of these people? Well, chapter two continues and we're introduced to another character. His name is Boaz. Boaz is the owner of the field. He is the man in like the the position of power and sovereignty. And so actually that tension that we were just feeling, it's actually just increased even more. We have the man with all the power and we have the woman with no power. And so maybe we hold our breath for a second, wondering what is going to happen. But then in that one moment, the tension is cut and the hope breaks through because the text tells us that he is a worthy man, a worthy man in the time of the judges. We should be surprised. And we read that he sees Ruth and we should feel excitement about that. It should be so obvious to us about who Boaz is reminding us of. It's Jack from This Is Us. I'm kidding. He is a worthy man, okay? He is a worthy man, a righteous man, a generous man of the tribe of Judah and takes notice of a foreign exiled woman. And so we start to lean forward in anticipation, right? The plot line is anticipating that something good is happening. And so we say, oh, is this a solution to the problem? And I want you to just quickly take notice here that he approaches Ruth and he says, stay close, stay in my field. He serves her lunch, specifically bread and wine, maybe like kind of a charcuterie board of that time. And he provides for her. He provides for her in extravagant ways. Guys, we see Boaz in chapter two as a host preparing a table before Ruth in the presence of her enemies. Okay, chapter chapter three, things really start to heat up. So Ruth had the plan, but now Naomi has a plan. This time it's for survival. So at at Naomi's advice, Ruth is going to go after Boaz and it's nothing short of amazing. So on the night when Boaz is gonna winnow the barley, I think that just means bring in the harvest, Ruth is going to go to him, but she's gonna wait until he's full of food and drink because she knows that's when men are easier to work with. And she's going to wait till he falls asleep and then she's gonna sneak in and sleep at his feet. And the story tells us that in the middle of the night, something awoke Boaz and behold, there was a woman at his feet and it's a Christmas miracle for Boaz. (laughs) Guys, what would you say if you were Ruth? You had to have thought through this, right? What would you have said? I mean, essentially she is going to propose to this older man. So you think that she practiced, right? She thought through it. Here's what she says to him. Spread your wings over your servant for you are redeemer. And we're like, oh, that's weird. You ruined it. You ruined your one opportunity, woman. But maybe we can agree that we have something else to learn about that. 
Either way, there are still some unknowns, but chapter three closes and we feel excited as the readers. Boaz does give Ruth a yes, but he says that there's some legal matters that he still has to tend to and he will see to it in the morning. But we ask this question, so is he the king or is he the husband? I mean, because maybe we think he's the king because we see the hungry being fed. But then we see kind of a proposal and some weird version of a love story. And we think, oh no, he's the husband. That's how things are going to get better. Maybe there's a king coming. Or maybe there's a husband coming. And we're not sure. But we feel excited either way. Yeah, and, and we're getting close to the part of the story where we get to see Ruth's redemption. And so the chapter four or overview is that there was a man appointed redeemer and he, he essentially comes by and Boaz explains the situation to him. And, and he's actually quick to say yes, um, this family redeemer is. He says, yeah. And maybe he's thinking it would be a good business deal where he'd gain some money or property or some possessions out of it. Um, but as Boaz explains more, um, he, he, under, he starts to understand and realize that it actually might come at a very um, strong personal cost for this redeemer um, to redeem these women. And it might come at a cost of sacrifice or even selflessness. Um, so he changes his mind and he says no. Um, but Boaz, knowing the women and their situation, um, says yes. And he, and he becomes their, this family redeemer and he pays the price for these women. And so th this, their, these women, their, their history of famine and suffering and loss is looking hopeful finally. Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. Um, and, and after 10 years of not having a child, Ruth ends up giving, um, experiencing a miraculous birth to a baby boy. And the chapter ends with Naomi, the bitter one, Naomi. It ends with her holding her baby grandson. This baby in her arms is called a restorer. He's called a restorer and a redeemer because he will help provide and take care of these women as they age and meet their needs. This little babe wouldn't be able to erase their pain and suffering, but he does offer fresh hope for them. Remember how Naomi said that she left full and returned empty? Well, now her arms are full with this baby boy, her grandson, who is going to be a restorer for her. And she is full as she's able to reflect on God's faithfulness through it all. Things are changing in chapter 4. So ladies, as we start to wrap this up, let's go through the questions that we have built from this story. So let's re-ask some questions. Does God care for these women? Or just does God care? There's our Sunday school answer. But then there's the answer if we're really being honest with ourselves and with God. Do we believe that he cares? And the answer is immensely. He cares immensely. God is not absent. God is not just watching from the skies, ladies. As we see in Ruth's story, while we may not hear him explicitly talking or intervening, we see very clearly that God is ruling over and working through every decision made in this story. And there's a lot of them. Every decision, every move, good or bad, we see God ruling over it and working through it. Does God care? Absolutely. And he cares for you. He cares enough that he would send his son. He would do something about it. 
He would send Jesus as the protector and the provider and the deliverer of his people. What about the husband question? Where is the husband? To answer that, ladies, you have to look not at Boaz, but at who Boaz is pointing to. Okay, walk through this with me, guys. I love, I love this part of the text. Recall that awkward thing that Ruth says to Boaz at the threshing floor. She says to him, spread your wings over your servant, for you are redeemer. She is not asking to cuddle. She's not asking to spoon in this moment. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are redeemer. It seems weird, but actually what's happening here is Ruth, by the Spirit's inspiration, is pulling from multiple other places in the Bible. Right away, Ruth is actually teaching us. She's the teacher showing us who God is. And if you've been around Veritas women very long, you know that we are always looking in the Bible. What does it say about God? And who does this text reveal God to be? Ruth is going to teach us who God is in this. Because actually when she says, spread your wing over me, we should go all the way back to Genesis 1-1, where we read that the spirit was hovering over creation. We see God himself personified almost like as a maternal bird. And then again, in Exodus, you hear God saying this to his freshly liberated people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I, God, bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. But she's also playing off of Ezekiel. Listen to this, this is prophetic poetry, it's beautiful. Then I, God, then I pass by you, child of God. I passed by you and saw you and you were indeed old enough for love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into covenant with you, and you became mine, declared the Lord. Ruth is not just showing us who God is, but who Christ is. She is introducing us to Christ as husband. Our redeemer is our husband. So where is the man who will redeem and save? Look past Boaz. Look right past him because he is pointing us to Jesus. He is a type of Christ. Jesus would be the worthy God-man, a holy man amidst a crooked generation where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He is the groom and he sees us, the bride, while we were still far off. So know this tonight, ladies. Hold on to this. He sees you. Not because you're impressive, not because you are put together, not because you come to church or because you're disciplined or hardworking or fearless. No, it is just because of the gospel, because we read that it's while we were still sinners that Christ took notice of us, just like Boaz taking notice of Ruth in the fields. And hear this, ladies, the invitation to you from your husband God is the same as Ruth's invitation from Boaz. Do you remember what he said to her? Stay close, remain near, don't go off, don't stiff arm me, don't wander away to provide for yourself. Stay close, and as Naomi says, you will find rest. We're happy here to find the husband and the redeemer. 
um, of this lost inheritance. But what about everyone else in Bethlehem or even all of Israel? Remember how the book started? There was no king. So how is the book of Ruth pointing us to a king? Well, the hope for the king is the baby. This baby, this baby boy is the start of a generational line that leads to a temporary and worthy king and then eventually to a worthy king that will last forever. This, this temporary king is King David. He was, um, he was from Bethlehem, which is why it's called the city of David, and he was promised that an even worthier king would come from his family line, and that king was Jesus. So we leave the story watching Naomi's hope be restored, and as she holds her baby grandson, it's the restorer of life. And farther down the generational line, we meet another baby boy who would grow to meet the needs of all humanity, restoring all pain-filled histories and providing hope-filled futures. Another baby boy born of a miraculous birth in the very same town of Bethlehem would be the ultimate restorer of life, Another betrothed man and wife would travel this road to Bethlehem, stifling their way through this cramped town as everyone was coming home for the census. They would find a feeding trough to lie this newborn in and watch him experience life, knowing that he would one day breathe life into all of humanity. The beginning of the book of Ruth starts with no king in Israel and ends with the genealogy of king of kings. So where is the king? The king is here because the king is Jesus. And the parallels between Boaz and Jesus are beautiful. This baby Jesus would grow up to acknowledge our brokenness the same way that Boaz acknowledged Naomi and Ruth's. This baby Jesus would grow to take foreign people who were far from God the same way that Boaz brought Ruth, the Moabite and foreigner, near. And this baby Jesus would grow up to be a man that would pay a high price so that we would no longer have to stay in our pain or in our suffering or even our bitterness, the same way that Boaz paid the price to be a redeemer for the women that we've learned about. The price King Jesus paid was his very own life. He suffered pain and experienced brokenness on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to, and so that he could redeem and restore us and give us hope for a future. So where is the king? He is here and he is coming. The king is Jesus. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Let's pray, ladies. Father, we thank you so much that you are our greatest need and our greatest joy. Father, I pray for the women in this room tonight. I pray that you would grab hold of them, grab their attention tonight, grab their heart, grab their lives, Lord. Lord, I pray that they would see that while Ruth is loyal and while Boaz is righteous, that only whispers of your loyalty and your righteousness. Jesus, you were born a king You were born to reign. You were born to deliver. And Lord, you see these women. Good years, bad years, mundane years, you see them, Lord, and you invite them to come near and you invite them to rest. Lord, I pray that this room would be a room of rest as your truth, as your gospel goes out. 
that we would feel safe in you, that we would feel protected in you, that we would feel newness offered to us. May we be a women of rest because we see who you are. You are king of kings from the manger on and you are husband. You are not a a God who is far off and you are not a savior who saved us and then just left, but you are a savior who wants to be close and who wants to be intimate and who wants to know us. So Lord, for the women in this room who are keeping you at an arm's distance, I pray that you would break down those walls. Those women who are keeping you at a religious distance, I pray that you would draw them close. Lord, let your love be stronger than their bitterness. Let your love be stronger than their fight, Lord. In the most loving and tender of ways, would you break down the walls that we would see you for who you are, that we would rejoice, that our hope would grow and that our fears would be defeated by you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Thank you for providing rest. Amen.